This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframe. So we've got Dr. Michelle Moreau with us today. So really exciting. Michelle comes from, well, my stomping grounds back in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and she is a full-time clinician, and we really wanted to continue bringing folks on. We're kind of in the trenches all day, seeing a full book of individuals who tend towards that persistent pain direction, as Tim and I both really believe that speaking to folks who are doing it on a day in and day out basis is where we can gleam a huge amount of our understanding. And Michelle's gonna bring some great tips about how she handles that physically and mentally. You know, she has some own relevant history of chronic pain and now is engaged in these very emotional circumstances and just sort of how she goes about managing that and make sure she brings her best self to clinic every day. So for all of you clinicians and patients out there, here is someone coming from the trenches. Without further ado, Dr. Michelle Moreau. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Awesome. So, Michelle, can you kind of just give the listeners a few-minute background of, you know, where you are day-to-day, kind of maybe how you came into really falling in love with this, you know, persistent pain world, and then we're going to dive beyond that and talk about some strategies for mental and physical health for the practitioner. So, I'm looking forward to the episode. Sure. So, the only reason I feel like I'm good at talking about this is because I was so bad at it for so long. Um, and I think I think a lot of healthcare professionals are, to be honest. We are not necessarily good at taking care of ourselves a lot of the time. And it's not just, you know, yes, it's difficult to treat persistent pain in and of itself, but then there's so many system-wide issues that can make that so much more challenging too. So if you know a lot about treating persistent pain, you know social determinants of health matter a great deal, but sometimes they're very difficult to change. And I, I'm a fixer, and when I can't control or change something, it frustrates me. And it can be difficult for me to swallow sometimes. So sometimes when you feel like you're treating poverty or you're treating mental illness that's being poorly managed because, you know, some of the mental health care professionals in this county have six months to a year long wait time sometimes. So it can just be a lot. It can be very challenging, but so worth it. And I'm really glad that I found better strategies to help myself. So how I kind of like to look at this is I have a well-honed self-care routine now and That's kind of an ironic statement for somebody like me to make because I would have laughed at that five years ago. That would have made me think like, oh, that's that's for other people who can't handle things, (laughs) which is really kind of a jerk thing to say. (laughs) I think a lot of us have this mentality in healthcare, like we're type A, we're perfectionistic, we're overachievers. We don't need as much help as other people. We can do more than other people. And that's just really not sustainable or healthy. And I had to learn repeatedly the hard way that that is just not healthy. So my routine now has come about kind of, I had to learn a lot of it in residency because I had a really challenging time. My residency was two and a half hours away from where my husband lives, where we live now. So I was in another state living separate from him during residency and residency itself was just stressful with a lot of work and schoolwork. And then just mentoring. I love mentoring. Can't say enough about how much you can learn during it, but it can be very, very stressful to get critical feedback in front of patients. And then I had some other personal issues, like my mom was sick at the time, and there's just a lot going on with my family. And it was a very humbling experience because it was the first time I ever experienced what I would consider clinical anxiety, where I couldn't sleep. Like I just could not sleep nights before mentoring. I would be up so late, just trying to sleep and just tossing and turning and I wasn't exercising enough. I wasn't eating right. There was just so much stuff that compounded and it kind of ended up with like a little bit of a, maybe a mini breakdown would be like the right way to describe it, where 
one of my residency professors actually reached out to one of my mentors and was like, I don't think she's doing so well. (laughs) So one of my mentors, Bob Brady, talked to me about this and he said like, hey, why aren't you asking for help? I'm like, I I don't ask for help. That's not, that's not in my vocabulary. What is that? (laughs) Um, So I actually had to learn throughout that process. And that's kind of how I arrived at the strategy that I have. So I like to use the cup analogy, similar to how I would describe it with a patient. You know, there's things that fill your cup and things that empty your cup. And when your cup's overflowing, you need to do things to, you know, lighten the load a little bit. So for me, I kind of have hallmarks. So my canary in the coal mine for when I'm not doing well, or when I know I need to do a better job of my self-care is my sleep. My sleep is still like the first thing that'll tell me that I'm not doing well because my body will just not feel like I can sleep well at night. So I think that we oftentimes tell our patients to sleep better because it'll help with pain. But a lot of the time we don't take our own advice. Um, So I've worked really, really hard to hone a good sleep hygiene routine and to protect my sleep a lot more than I used to, because I think I used to see it as a badge of honor. Like, oh, I don't need as much sleep as other people. Four or five hours and I'm fine. I can function fine. But when you get good, consistent, solid sleep, you realize like, whoa, what have I been missing for so long? (laughs) So that's probably the big thing that will first indicate that I'm not doing well. I don't know how you guys feel about sleep. I know, Jeff, you're quite the busy individual. Well, Michelle, you know, I think I'll jump right on that sleep and just how important it is, obviously, personally and for our patients. And I'll admit the same, that I was not getting as restful sleep as I used to be. And it's interesting, a couple things I've found out, but number one, many of the things we do, if we just measure it, we begin to change it. So I'm sold on, I don't like to wear watches, but I wear, it's called an Oura ring, O-U-R-A, dot com. And the Oura or Oura ring is just a, it's a monitor. It's a sleep monitor, heart rate and heart rate variability monitor. And it's crazy that, well, I found out a couple things that were affecting my sleep and especially my REM sleep, but also just knowing that it's there and measuring it, I can figure out, okay, what triggers might've been the day before that affected my sleep. So I would just say the one key thing to jump on there, obviously the importance of sleep both now and as I age and the number one risk factor I have is, you know, cognitive loss and the the coupling of poor sleep with cognitive loss. And just knowing that, you know, you double down on that's such an important variable in health. And so I guess I would just echo what you said and said for our listeners, you know, it starts with monitoring. Once we measure something, we actually begin to improve it. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been amazed, Tim. You rock the Ura ring. I've got the Whoop band. And same deal. Like, you know, what doesn't get measured doesn't get changed, at least not any real long-term deliberate way. And I think that everybody would really benefit from taking those moments of kind of like self-inventory gathering. Michelle, your point really rings home about this type A idea and, you know, getting busy and so proud of productivity But that definitely leaves a big blind spot. I think there's something to be said about at the beginning of each week and the end of each week, you know, being deliberate on how do I feel? You know, what does my recovery feel like? Am I waking up feeling rested? Is there a reasonable amount of stillness in my mind when there needs to be? Or am I kind of getting on the hamster wheel? Do you, Michelle, have routines during the day where you kind of check in with yourself, whether it's at lunch or when you wash your hands between patients, anything that you do to kind of regularly see where things are at? 
Yeah. So that would bring me trauma. There's a lot of domestic violence, a lot of physical and sexual abuse, a lot of just really rough situations that people have been in. And I'm kind of like a big empathic sponge. (laughs) So I need to find a way to like leave that at work before I go home. So mindfulness meditation before I leave for the day has been very, very helpful. So those are primarily the two big times. I would say when I first wake up, check in at lunch and then check in at the end of the day. If I find myself getting stressed throughout the day or if I find myself just feeling like I can't bring my full energy to every interaction, I will just give myself five minutes between patients just to check in, do a body scan. I know that sometimes that might make me a tiny bit late to my next person because I do treat a pretty full caseload most days, you know, anywhere from like 10 to 15 people. But I would rather be five minutes late and fully present and fully engaged than, you know, on time, but rushed and hurried and not paying attention and not focused. So for me, it has drastically changed my ability to be present with people. And I think it's a really useful tool to have. So I do do that check in with myself very often throughout the day. Very cool. Tim, how about you? I mean, you and I have kind of thrown this idea around a lot. I mean, do you have certain strategies that you use to kind of get that mental balance and make sure it's kind of staying between the navigational beacons? Absolutely. And I echo what Michelle was saying, particularly on the the mindfulness meditation. And I have to admit, you know, it's like you said, Michelle, it is that personal to everyone, but it doesn't need to take a long time. And yet it, just the profound changes it can have is pretty, I have to say, remarkable. I've kind of interesting moved in the last probably 40 days to the Waking Up series by Sam Harris. And what I found different from that, from some of the others I've tried, was just this idea of, and maybe I was more open to it, that idea that, you know, whether it be thoughts, feelings, sounds, whatever, they're always present. And it only becomes in our mind when we focus on that and that idea that we can focus on that and then be curious about where in the mind is that sensation, thought, belief, and then let it go. And I found that really powerful for me that you just begin to sense more of the world around you. And I guess that's probably why they call it waking up. Uh, I do think it's, yeah, it's a pretty powerful tool And I'm with you that it's like anything. I think as we move into spaces where the caricature of the overweight smoking physician, that's just not acceptable anymore, right? And I think we're going to see the same in those that work in the space of persistent pain. We have to model the behaviors that we're working on the individuals we're working with. So, yeah, very cool. I'd like to respond to that. You mentioned that statement uh, that you're an empathetic or empathic sponge, I believe was the term. And <laughs> yeah. you know, I think it's a great term. And it is that kind of yin and yang that we have to be. Uh, maybe I'm curious what you think of this. We had a whole body listening workshop for our team. And Saul Hopper is a psychologist and works <clears throat> with a lot of patients, but also CEOs and in terms of helping with organizational behavior. He made that comment and had us practice this idea, you know, when working in challenging environments where, as you mentioned, things are coming out that are really hard stuff. First of all, we have to be there and listen and be fully present. But if we take all that in, you know, then it's we cannot be our best provider. So he talks a lot about his strategy of flow through, that he literally allows those feelings 
through his body to resonate and feel those feelings, but then allows them to pass through. So they kind of come up higher in the body and then they just pass through. And we model and tried that strategy. I'm curious, have you ever tried that yourself? Yeah, not so eloquently worded, though. I like that. That's a good way of thinking of it. I had talked with, this is one of the things I feel very blessed with, is that I am blessed with mentors who will happily talk to me about these types of things and help me come up with strategies, as well as working with a counselor that was really helpful. But I had a strategy given to me because part of the problem for me is like when people are having such a hard time with so many big societal problems, I feel like they get overlooked so much and I feel like they get brushed under the rug so much or people can't change them. So they just choose not to think about them. And I really feel like that's not exactly ideal because, you know, how do you change poverty and education and violence and these things without thinking about them? So for me, I just felt like to not fully feel that would in some way be doing people a disservice, you know, that's where my brain went with that. And I didn't realize that like I wasn't letting that stuff go though. I was holding on to it and it's just building, right? So one strategy that's similar to the letting it pass through was just at the end of the day to give myself five minutes to be sad or to be angry or to be frustrated or whatever feeling I needed to be about that problem. And then just be able to say, okay, I cannot give any more energy to that right now because I need energy for other things like my family and, you know, life. So yeah, I guess that would be a similar concept, but I like that analogy of letting it pass through because you're still acknowledging this pain and the suffering and the difficulty that this person in front of you is having, but you're also not trying to take it and carry it all day long because nobody can do that. It's just, you can't, it's not possible. So I think that that's a really healthy way of approaching that because it allows you kind of the best of both worlds to be present with people, which I think matters a ton for their ability to recover and improve working with you to know that you care about them and that you're willing to sit there in that situation with them a little bit is really meaningful and powerful, but also for your own health and well-being, you can't do that 10 times a day, every day of your career forever without letting it go. So. No, that's a great point, Michelle. I think I mean, a lot of this for me kind of comes back to what Tim always says about data doesn't change behavior. You know, people follow people. And mm-hmm. I, I love that we're having this conversation because I think a lot of the strategies that you're talking about using and Tim is talking about using, those are the same ones that we're trying to teach patients, right? Like be mindful and take these moments and give yourself some grace and be aware of how you feel, but also be willing to let it go. Do you often talk to your patients, Michelle, about the strategies that you use in the chronic pain that you've went through? I mean, do you share these personal experiences to kind of relate to them on a deeper level? I do. I agree that that's a great strategy for them to know that you're going through things or have gone through things. Because I think sometimes when you talk to somebody who's had, you know, decades of pain, and I'm relatively young, I'm 30 and appear healthy from the outside, you know, nobody would see me and think that I have any physical impairments or anything. So it's easy for people to think that I don't understand or that I couldn't possibly know what they're going through. A lot of them have pretty rough upbringings and rough lives outside of just their pain too. So I think it can be very, very helpful for people to know that they're not alone and that their healthcare providers do understand to some point. I just think we have to be very, very careful to make sure that we validate what they're experiencing first 
And usually if I'm going to talk about it, I'll always kind of preface it with like, I know our situations aren't exactly the same. I just want you to know that I'm not coming at this from a place of having never had pain myself or never having had difficult situations myself, because these are some things that have been helpful for me, but I'm always trying to be careful of transference and realizing that my experience is not my patient's experience. I think Morgan Denny just had a really, really great ice video that she did about that. That was just really fantastic. And that resonated with me a lot. So it's kind of like a, an art, I think, to share your experience with a person while still making the overall session about them and their experience. Absolutely. Michelle, would you be willing to share a bit about your sort of chronic pain experience as far as getting it better and working with it? Have you primarily self-treated or, I mean, I oftentimes find that challenging when I have something going on with me, uh, self-diagnosis and self-treatment seems to be a bear. Always better to have Mm -hmm. kind of someone from the outside look at it and give you some guidance and kind of you have a more objective view. I'd be curious if there were certain strategies you use that were really valuable and that you'd be interested in sharing with other clinicians, patients, listeners. Sure. Well, in true Michelle fashion, I did most of it on my own, which I'm learning (laughs) to not do that. But I knew I didn't hurt myself because my accident was terrifying. I thought I was going to die just because I was going like 75 miles an hour on a freeway and a car swerved into my lane and pushed my car off the edge of the embankment. But I also know like I landed upside down on the roof of my car and I never hit my head on anything and I didn't jostle my head really hard. It was just a slow roll to a stop and I could crawl myself out of the car and I did the Canadian cervical spine rules on myself and everything. And, you know, I did end up getting radiographs at the ER and things like that. So I knew I didn't like injure anything. So I had that kind of knowledge already in my head of like, well, I know I didn't damage anything. Because how would that have happened, you know? But I also, just at the time I started to experience that, it was a few weeks after that I started to read books like Why Do I Hurt by Adrian Lowe and some other things. I'm like, wait a minute here. This stuff really seems to make a lot of sense to me. And it did make sense, but I wasn't actually able to change it very effectively for a long time. So I guess because I knew I hadn't damaged anything, I didn't feel the need to seek out a lot of medical care about it. But I will tell you, even knowing stuff, I still worried. I still worried about, man, is this going to get better? Because this is making my life really difficult sometimes. It is really hard to get through my workday. It's really hard to be comfortable while I'm working and that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of neck pain and a lot of upper back pain. And then that kind of turned into a lot of radiating like ulnar nerve tension on both sides. And It was kind of like I got to observe it from a place of a curiosity a little bit, though, just because having known that I didn't actually damage anything at the time. But what was honestly the most helpful for me was as I started to work on my mental health, on things like my sleep, my anxiety and stress, and as I started to exercise more regularly, a lot of my pain reduced after that. And it was actually probably weight training that was, I don't know why, I don't know if it was just because it was something new and fun that I got to feel successful at and that wasn't stressful that also loaded that area a lot, but a lot of heavy lifting, which I had never really done heavy deadlifts before. I'd never done, you know, like hang cleans and that kind of stuff. But a lot of that, you know, that hits the upper trap, that just really seemed to help quite a lot. And I still, to this day will, that'll be the first place I feel pain when I'm stressed is my neck, but it's not debilitating and it's not constant and it's not anything that I can't handle or manage. It's just, I think what was probably most helpful for me was just understanding that I don't have to change this right now. I think that that can be hard for people. When you have pain, you want to escape it. You want to avoid it. You want to make it go away right away. 
But I think what was probably the most helpful is just coming at it from a place of curiosity so I could understand it better as opposed to a place of being frustrated or angry at it. And then just kind of observing how it responded to different things and doing more of the things that felt good and not necessarily avoiding the things that hurt. Like I couldn't avoid sitting at my computer. I couldn't avoid work, but at least not only doing those things. Whereas before in residency, that's pretty much all I was doing was work and homework, tons of computer work, tons of driving. So... You know, it's interesting listening, Michelle, and just our language around, so you're in a high-velocity motor vehicle accident and a rollover accident, and yet the language of not damaging anything, and yet knowing neurobiology of the chemical milieu of your, you know, your central nervous system went under, and the stress response to that resulting in, shall we say, fiscal pain. But we still in our our society somehow, if we didn't damage anything, when in fact we did, it's just not the classic outward things that we tend to see. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder where, you know, as we go through this evolution professionally for those that are in the physical professions, how we move forward with this new understanding and the fact not wanting to make things worse <laughs> by saying yeah. damage, you know, mm-hmm. and in the fact we did have changes, reversible changes, but changes the response to that stress response, which we see that we now know in young folks growing up and folks that are traumatized, it's the same stress response as created this environment. So just curious, both Jeff and you, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that kind of goes back to making sure that someone is, you know, validated because while I didn't cause macro level tissue trauma, there was definitely neurobiological changes that occurred. I think for me, probably explaining a little bit more like the way I kind of thought about it was, is I just tipped the scales on my body's ability to tolerate things. So I wasn't so much seeing my body as damaged as I was seeing it more as like overloaded. So kind of, I guess, like talking about how like our immune system, our endocrine system, our neurologic system can get a little overwhelmed and it might need some help resetting that. Cool. So Michelle, I'm curious. I didn't catch it at the beginning. So one last little thing I was wondering about, what is your setup with your patients? Because it sounds kind of unique. Is there room for you to be doing exercise or are you like truly just doing like pain science education in like in the room? Oh, no, no, no. Um, Okay. So you have like a gym there. Yeah, I do. It's actually under renovation right now to be made a little bigger, but it's a small gym, but it is a gym. Right now there's another physical therapist who works with me here and we each have a private examination room and then we have the gym space. So I would say that my treatment doesn't necessarily look a whole lot different than what you might expect to find in any therapy gym, other than, you know, not very modality heavy, obviously, but I still do manual therapy a lot more judiciously than I used to in terms of how long I'll do it and for what purpose and a lot more test retest than prior to residency and that type of thing. I do do a lot of pain education, but not as much of it is the fire hose approach that I took when I first learned it. You know, you can overwhelm a lot of people or come off the wrong way, the way that you might not want to come off. But I still will. There are some people where they come to me on day one and they're really, really ready for a heavy dose of pain education. But I always like to think of education as a tool to behavior change 
because you can't talk people out of pain. And I don't like this perception that a lot of people in our profession and other professions have that pain science just means that you're talking people out of their pain or or that that's even possible. Um, it's really just evidence-based medicine in the same way anything else would be. And I use education judiciously as a way to help people overcome barriers to behavior change. So if fear, for example, is a barrier to somebody exercising, then I have to address that fear. If a belief that they can't get better because they have disc degeneration is a barrier to recovery, then we have to address that belief in order to get to behavior change. And there are some people where, yes, they do need the full, long, drawn-out neurobiological explanation of pain, but vast, vast, vast majority of people do not need that level. I kind of feel like the hallmarks that people really need are to be able to understand that pain doesn't equal damage, to be able to understand that there's multiple factors that influence pain, which is, in fact, good news because it means that there's a lot of different ways you can try to change it. And to understand that pain doesn't have to mean that you can't live your life, that you can't go out and do things and try things. So that's kind of how I use education. There are times, yes, where I might sit down and have like a 20-minute educational session with somebody. But the vast majority of it is shorter now in bits and pieces kind of scattered throughout treatment, you know, as part of their exercise, as part of manual therapy. So that's kind of what my setup looks like. I get one-on-one sessions with people, which is really great. I personally hate double booking and will probably never choose to do that in my practice ever. So, Are your physician colleagues on board? I mean, are you all kind of on the same page with this messaging, you know, so that the patient's getting pretty consistent messages regardless of who they engage with there in the clinic? Mm-hmm. It's getting better. I'm working pretty hard on it. Our younger providers definitely get quite on board. Um, you know, not to the level where they're explaining these things to people in great detail on the, on their own, but they are starting to do things like mild disc degeneration on your x-ray. That's completely normal for your age and really dialing back the fear related to imaging to start to have conversations with people about how things like anxiety and depression and their lifestyle and exercise and sleep impact pain. With my providers who have been practicing a little bit longer, it's a little bit harder to change that. But I did actually do a few different presentations about just modern pain science to all of my providers. And they were all very excited about the information and very, like, could see how it has direct application to so many of our clients. I would really like to see more of it implemented in their day-to-day interactions with people. But I also understand, like, if you've been practicing one way for 40 years, can be a little tough to change that. So it's a work in progress for some people, but you know, I'm just trying to affect the change I can. And yeah, it's been a good approach so far. I actually really like having them in the building because it's just easy to communicate with them. It's easy to make patients feel like your healthcare providers are all on the same team. So that's been helpful. So Michelle, as we sort of talk about self-care and, you know, keeping an eye on, on where we are mentally and physically and monitoring that, you know, when, when it does seem like things are getting a bit out of bounds, what do you think the role is for professional help? You know, should that be considered often? Should that be considered every time? I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on maybe when you cross that bridge. This is something I'm really, really passionate about because I feel like there is still a huge stigma about mental health care services and accessing those not just for PTs, but for physicians, PAs, nurses, anybody in healthcare, really, like, we always want to be seen as the helpers. And I think that there's still a lot of people who feel like if you're accessing mental health services, it means you're weak or not capable of doing your job properly, or 
people don't want other people to know that they're accessing mental health services. I've actually had friends who are in healthcare and won't get help because they're afraid that if people found out they got help, then nobody would want to see them as a provider, which is just ridiculous to me. So I just think it's really, really important that if you feel like you're struggling, if you're not functioning at your best, and if you think you want help with that, there's no like threshold for sickness. You don't have to wait until you can't function to get help. So I think that seeking out the help of a mental health care professional, whether that be a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker who does counseling and is well-trained, any of those things is an excellent thing to do if you feel like you're struggling at all. I do that myself. And I will admit that when I first did it, it was very difficult for me, very difficult to be vulnerable or admit that I needed help from somebody. But that held me back for way longer than it needed to in terms of being my best self. And I think it's very, very important for people to understand that if you are doing a difficult job, and as much as I love treating persistent pain, and I really do, I am so blessed to be able to help people every day that I'm at work, but we need to take care of ourselves. And we need, like I tell my patients, if you're running a NASCAR race, you make pit stops, right? You have a pit crew that helps you with that. Your healthcare team is like your pit crew and mental health care should be a hallmark member of that team. And it breaks my heart when I know people could benefit from something and they still don't ask for the help because of that stigma. And I just think it's really, really important that we as healthcare providers start to stop that. So when I'm talking about it with patients, for example, if you don't make a big deal out of it, then they realize that it's something that's just a normal part of being a human being and that sometimes we need help with these things and it's not something that I should be embarrassed of. It doesn't make me less of a person and it does not mean that I can't do my job well. I love it, Michelle. And I love the pit crew analogy. Like that's a great way to normalize it. It completely makes sense that all of our systems should be looked at, you know, intermittently by individuals who have a good objective standpoint, a ton of expertise. So I can't help but think not only does it benefit you, but to learn what these mental health providers have to offer gives us that much more ability to come alongside our patients. Agreed. Awesome. Well, Michelle, really appreciate that and really appreciate you coming at us from the stomping grounds of the UP. Thanks for doing such good work up there. It's so cool. We have you and Liz Pepin and Adam Ryan and kind of a whole Mm -hmm. fleet of folks who are really getting after this and changing the narrative around pain. So really appreciate all you do and and thanks for your time and thanks for being here. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Michelle, actually, before we do sign off, do you mind leaving your calling card as far as your email or social media presence or anywhere that folks can kind of track you and engage with you? Sure. So people could probably get a hold of me. The easiest way would be my work email, which is Michelle, and that's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E dot Moro, M-O-R-R-O-W at bellin.org. And bellin is B-E-L-L-I-N dot org. Perfect. Well, I really enjoyed Michelle's insight from a personal level on how do we take care of ourselves when working with often very challenging clients who are going through challenging times. She brought up some great points about really self-care and the importance of self-care throughout the day, throughout the week, in particular, the idea of sleep importance and how we also use mindfulness in small doses, but can be very effective in keeping ourselves present at the time, but not allowing us 
to be overwhelmed by the challenges that we're facing. So really, really enjoyed Michelle's perspective, and I hope each and every one of the listeners did. Make sure you check us out, ispinstitute.com, for programming regarding pain and persistent pain in education, as well as follow Jeff and I on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you may want to look for us. So I hope each and every one of you have a most excellent day. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.